Father, we're so thankful that we can come together to study your word, to be reminded of your grace and that your grace plan has always been for all human beings, Jew and Gentile alike, and that you chose through your grace to call Abraham uh, 2,000 years before Christ to work through him and through his descendants as custodians of the word of God and as those who would, who through whom the Messiah would come. And that salvation is not just for the Jews, but it is for Jews and Gentiles alike, uh, both in the former age as well as uh, today and in the age to come. Father, we pray that you would challenge us now as we study your word and reflect upon your plan for Israel, as Paul details this in, in uh, Romans 10, that we may truly understand and be able to think through this passage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and we're really going to be looking at, starting with verse 12 in terms of new content, but I want to give you some review because this isn't the easiest material to think through. And after you hear me teach, and then you go back and try to work your way through and go, well, wait a minute, why did he say that? I want to review this again because I think this is really important. It's not the normal way in which people approach this passage. The way most people approach, especially verses 9 and 10, is that this is talking in some sense about justification and in some other sense maybe about sanctification, although there are a lot of Christians who look at Romans 10, 9, and 10 as being part of the formula for salvation. You believe in your heart, but then if you truly believe, if you genuinely believe, if you are truly elect, then you will, your works will show it. And in this sense that it will, um, you will talk about it and you will tell somebody that you believed in Jesus. So that's pretty much how probably 98 or 99% of Christendom has interpreted this passage. As I've pointed out, and again and again, we'll do a little more in-depth study of the word later on, but it's part of the problem is we have this preset mindset that when you see the word saved, it's talking about getting eternal life and going to heaven. But that's not how the word is used, either in the Hebrew in the Old Testament or in Greek in the New Testament. It has a range of meanings, and I've gone through that. The core meaning of the word sozo, as well as its uh, Hebrew term, is uh, yasha is the Hebrew, uh, sozo in the Greek means to deliver from a predicament. That might be from deliverance from illness, in which case we would translate it healing. It might be deliverance from one's enemies in a battle, in which case it might be uh, said to be deliverance or something of that nature. Is there a sound problem back there? There's no internet. There's no internet. No, there's no screen. Oh, good. Sorry, is that whose fault? Well, it's technology's fault. Yeah, well, as usual. Okay, that happens. All right. So, where was I? Back on the word sozo. So, you, you really have to look at the context. Context is so important for understanding. Uh, what is being said in any type of conversation. And we have to understand what's going on around it. So uh, part of we, what we do in Romans is look at this word sozo and realize it's not used as a synonym for justification. It's used primarily to either talk about phase two salvation, which is the spiritual life, or deliverance, in a sense the whole complete package uh, phase one, phase two, and phase three together. You can't get to phase two or phase three if you're not justified. But it's not used as a synonym where you could just do a word substitution. It's really talking about the results or consequences, therefore, of, of justification. Now, the other thing we need to re- be reminded about in terms of the context is that Paul is now talking about 
Israel and the relationship of God's plan for Israel to his righteousness. And the point is that God is righteous in his dealings with Israel and that he eventually will fulfill all of his promises to Israel, as stated in the first part of Romans 9, that all of the promises and all of the covenants still belong to Israel, and God will eventually uh, fulfill those promises. And most of those promises in the Old Testament come back to the fact that Israel will be restored to the land as a unified people with a heart for God living in obedience. And that's spelled out again and again from the Torah, uh, especially in passages uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, in Leviticus, as well as Deuteronomy, Leviticus 26. Uh, after the uh, fifth cycle of discipline, Israel will be restored to the land um, and in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we'll look at some of those passages in Deuteronomy 30 again. And that's the context for these quotations that we have in, uh, in, in chapter 10. So to just remind us again, we've seen this so many times, but I want you to remember this. Romans 9 demonstrates the righteousness of God in his rejection of nas- national Israel. Now, this isn't a total rejection. It is a setting aside of Israel in his plan temporarily. So that if some have said, we're living in the period now of the great parenthesis. It was, it, this is an age, the church age that was not announced in the Old Testament, that was not predicted or prophesied in the Old Testament, was not foreseen. It is a, 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 a it's a parenthesis. It is the insertion of something new in God's plan between the arrival of the Messiah the first time and his coming uh, the second time. Romans 10 will demonstrate that 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 rejection by God is based on Israel's corporate neglect of the revelation that God had given to them. That's the whole point of these passages quoted in in, uh, verses 6, 7, and 8, that the word is near to them. Romans 11 then answers the question, well, has God permanently cast them away? And the answer is no. God still has a plan for national ethnic uh, Israel. So we looked last time at this same passage. I'm just reviewing Romans 10, 6 through 8 quotes from Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. Now, in Romans 10, 6 through 8, we read, but the righteousness from faith. Of faith there is a genitive of source. The righteousness that is from faith or is produced by faith would be another uh, more clear way of understanding it, speaks in this way. Now the question that we need to answer, okay, is this faith, salvation faith or justification faith, let me clarify it, make it better there, justification faith when a person receives eternal life, receives the imputation of righteousness and is declared righteous? Or is this faith, faith related to the ongoing walk of a believer after justification? Now, a lot of people think it's justification faith. But Paul quit talking about justification back in chapter 5 by chapter 521. He's talking about a different kind of righteousness. He's not talking about justification righteousness. He's talking about the right experiential righteousness in the life of a believer. Now, he's going to quote from these verses in Deuteronomy, uh, and I'll just go ahead and put this slide up here now, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. Now, for those of you who've been coming to the uh, Sunday night Bible study cl- uh, methods class. We've been talking about observation, the importance of observation in, in the text, and answering basic questions like who wrote something, when did they write it, to whom did they write it, what were the circumstances surrounding the writing, and what was the purpose uh, purpose for the writing, understanding the argument of a book. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, we first ask the question, who's speaking? The answer is Moses. Moses is speaking. Deuteronomy is a sermon, a message that Moses taught, sort of his parting Bible class, before he went to be with the Lord. 
And he goes through the history of how God had dealt graciously with Israel, how God had brought them through the wilderness, and now God has brought them to a significant point in his plan for them. And what point is that? They are on the edge of going into the land. So we're talking to the Exodus generation. I mean, um, we're talking to the conquest generation. The Exodus generation was made up of a lot of believers. Most of them were believers, but they were spiritual failures. They were characterized by rebellion. They were characterized by disobedience. And as a result, God let them uh, spend 40 years in the wilderness and did not allow them to enter into the land of Israel. Now, that picture of entering into the land of Israel is not a picture of entering into heaven. It's a picture of entering into the fullness of the promise that God has for the believer. So the Exodus generation is a picture of the disobedient believer who doesn't get his rewards and doesn't experience the full blessing that God promised him. But they're still believers. Now we have the conquest generation, their children. They are a superior generation spiritually. Because they are obedient. That is why they're going to be able to go into the land and conquer the, um, the, the, the inhabitants of the land. And they're going to be successful at it because they trust God. They trust God at Jericho. They have a little blip there, a little speed bump outside of Ai. Uh, but they eventually get their act together and they defeat the Canaanites at Ai and at Bethel. And then they go into the northern uh, areas in the southern areas, and they uh, defeat most of the Canaanites, at least in their major strongholds. They are successful because they're spiritually obedient. They are a believing generation. So Moses is addressing them as they are about to cross the Jordan River and go into the land that God promised them. He's not talking to them about how to get righteousness to go to heaven. He's talking to them about how they as believers should live for God and have experiential righteousness so that they can experience the blessings that God has for them in the land. And they're warned in Deuteronomy chapter uh, uh, 29 and in chapter 28 that they are going to be disobedient. There's going to be a time when their descendants will be disobedient And if it continues and intensifies to the point of complete idolatry and rebellion against God, then God is going to pull them out of the land and scatter them among all of the nations. But for this generation, they're believers, they're obedient, and so Moses is telling them that if you want to stay in the land, then you walk with the Lord. And this is seen in the next couple of verses beyond the ones that that Paul is quoting. In Deuteronomy 30, 15, he drives his sermon home. He says, See, I have set before you the conquest generation on the verge of the conquest. I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. you got two options. You've got a volition. Your generation needs to decide, your believers, are you going to walk with God and experience life and good, or are you going to be like your parents and walk in disobedience and experience death and evil. So he says, I set these options before you. Your choice. It's up to you what you're going to make of your generation and your life. I have said this before you in that, verse 16, in that I command you today to what? To love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments. How? That you may live and multiply. Now, living and multiplying are seen as two related ideas. That's not going to be going on in heaven. This is not talking about that you may live eternally and go to heaven because we're not Mormons. We don't believe we're going to die and go to heaven and make babies for the next 10 millennia. Okay? This is talking about life in the land. If you're obedient, you will live in the land. God will bless you, and you will have a rich, joyous, abundant life. If you're not, then you won't have that. So the promise is that you will live on earth in the land 
and be blessed by God. But, but contrast verse 17, if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, see, that's in this life, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. That's not eternal perishing. Many times the word, in fact, um, uh, probably at least half the time that we see the word perish used in the Scripture, it doesn't have to do with eternal condemnation. It has to do with temporal condemnation or temporal punishment or, or, or defeat in battle. Uh, Paul uses the, word, the, the comparable Greek word to talk about what would happen to him uh, what happened to him in, it might have happened to him in a shipwreck, that he might have perished, he might have died. So we're talking here about physical death and, and physical loss of property and, uh, and, and possessions in the land as a result of divine judgment. I now, he's, Moses says, I announce you today that you shall surely perish, you shall not prolong the days, your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. So, we're talking about how to richly enjoy life today. So this would come under the category not of how to get eternal life, which would be justification. It's not in the passage. He's talking about how to live a life that brings blessing, uh, that where you experience the blessing of God and the richness and fullness that God has for you. So in the preceding section, that just tells us that Moses is talking to believers about how to experience the richness of God's blessing in this life. In the verse, verses before, in verses 11 through 14, he's focusing on the fact that this is dependent upon how you respond to the word of God. And so he tells them, uh, the Lord, um, in verse 11, for this commandment, which I command you today, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. The commandments are right here is what he is saying. God has revealed them to you in the Torah, in the law. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say we'll go over the sea for us, uh, for us and who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. We see those two terms, mouth and heart, emphasized in, in the Romans 10 passage. See, and, and so the point here is that Moses is telling his hearers in the original context, the word is here before you. You don't have to go searching for it. You don't have to send somebody for it. It's not mystical. It's not mysterious. It's not hard to find. The issue is, do you want to respond to what God told you or not? Now, the way he applies it in Romans 10 is that he takes that, those same principles that the Word of God, the revelation of God is available to you right now, right where you are, and he applies that to Christ. Remember, we have the written Word of God, which is what... Moses is talking about, but in John chapter 1, we're told that the second person of the Trinity is, the Greek word is logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is, Jesus Christ is the living Word, and John 1, uh, 14 says, and the Word became flesh, the incarnation, and dwelt among us. Okay, so what we have is the living word in Jesus Christ is the greatest expression of God. Uh, John goes on to say that no one has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten has revealed him. So Jesus is the highest and greatest expression of God's disclosure or revelation of himself to everyone. So when Paul writes takes these passages, he paraphrases them and and applies them to Christ and the revelation of God that we have in Christ. So he says in verse 6, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, and then we have the application, that is to bring Christ down. He's viewing Christ here as that expression of revelation. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So he's applying the, the 
revelation idea of Deuteronomy 30 to Christ as the expression of God's revelation. But what does it say? That is, what does the word say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. You don't need to make up excuses. It's right there. It's present. So the point that I'm making is that as we study Scripture, we ask the question, who is being addressed? To whom is he speaking? Years ago, I learned a basic principle in seminary, that every passage is either talking to the un unrighteous, the unsaved, the unjustified, telling them how to be justified, or it's talking to the saved, telling them how to live the spiritual life. Every passage in Scripture is doing one or the other. It's either talking to the unbeliever and telling them how to get to heaven, or it's talking to the believer and telling them how they should live as a believer, one or the other. The problem is, and we're going to see this a lot in Matthew, and Matthew does a lot of the same kind of thing that Paul's doing in this chapter. Uh, Matthew is talking like the whole Sermon on the Mount is not addressed to unbelievers. It's addressed, it's, it says, second, third verse, Jesus went up and talked to his disciples. Now, everybody else comes and sits down around him, and they listen in. But Jesus is not talking to the multitudes. He's talking to his disciples. He's giving a Christian life well, it's not Christian yet. He's giving a spiritual life lesson to his disciples. Otherwise, you end up doing what a lot of people have done. You end up with a work salvation because you don't understand the context. Jesus isn't talking about how to get eternal life in the Sermon on the Mount. He's just doing the same thing that Paul is doing here. He's going to the Mosaic Law and interpreting it according to God's standards to show this is how, if you want to live in the land and, and enjoy the blessing of God, this is God's, these are God's standards. This is how you live if you're going to experience the blessing of God in the land. It's Jesus' interpretation of the Mosaic Law. Most of what is in the Sermon on the Mount is in the Old Testament, and Jesus is just giving it the correct spin. He's not giving it the legalistic spin of the Pharisees. This is what Paul is doing here. So Paul uh, follows the same principle. Moses is speaking to believers. Paul in Romans 10, is talking about the importance of righteousness in the Christian life. He's, he's quit talking about justification back in chapter 5, verse 21. So he's, he's consistent. He's taking a spiritual life context in Deuteronomy, and he's applying it in a spiritual life context in Romans chapter 10. So just as the issue in Deuteronomy is not gaining legal righteousness for salvation, but having experiential righteousness to enjoy the blessing of God, the same is true in the Romans 10 context, talking about uh, that in terms of justification. Now, going to Romans 10.13. I ended with this last time showing that the context of the fulfillment of this verse is at the end of the tribulation when the Jews, uh, the, the regenerate Jews in Israel who have followed the Lord's command in Matthew 24, which said, when you see these signs appearing, the signs of the abomination of desolation in the temple, the Antichrist, the judgments coming there in the second half of the tribulation. When you see these things, don't go back home. Just leave, head through the wilderness, and get out of, out of Jerusalem. And so Jews who leave Jerusalem at that point in the tribulation are already believers. They're already individually justified. That's why they're listening to Jesus and getting out of Dodge. But there are others who are left behind and will still come to salvation uh, during that time. They don't leave, but the group that leaves represent the nation of Israel at that time in the future. And they will flee across the desolate wastelands of the, of the uh, Judean desert, over across into what is now Jordan in the area of Petra and Basra, and there they will be protected by the Lord. And when the armies of the Antichrist come to destroy them and to wipe out all the Jews, then they will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon him to save them. 
Now, this is a quote from Joel 2.32, uh, as you see uh, at the bottom of the, the second verse. Now, the context of Joel 2 is at this time of the day of the Lord at the end of the tribulation period. Joel 2.32 says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, is that talking about justification? No, for two reasons. Reason number one is the Jews that end up there in Basra or Petra got there because they already believed Jesus, and they're fleeing in response to in obedience to his command. Second, the word there that's translated shall be saved isn't even your normal or predominant Old Testament Hebrew word for salvation. It's the word melet, which means to save or deliver in a physical sense. And then Joel goes on to explain this, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. Now you're saying, well, you're talking about Basra. Yes, but after Jesus returns at Basra, after they call on the name of the Lord, he's going to destroy the armies of the Antichrist that are there and then lead them in a a victorious battle march back to Jerusalem to rescue those who are still trapped in Jerusalem. So from in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. That is a, that's a term that means physical deliverance or escape, and it's in parallelism to the word shall be saved. So Joel 2.32 isn't talking about justification, salvation, getting into heaven. It's talking about physical deliverance uh, at the end of the tribulation when the total destruction and annihilation of the Jewish people is a very real, immediate threat. Now, this goes back to uh, Matthew chapter 23, 37. I looked at this last time. When Jesus is talking to the disciples in Matthew 23, and he predicts the judgment of Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 23, if you want to turn with me there to Matthew 23, 37. This is the last three verses in Matthew 23. And Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, the, the slide didn't pick up the other two verses. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a quotation from Psalm 118.26. And this speaks of what the, what the Israelites will do is they will call on the name of the Lord. They will call upon Jesus. That phrase, as we've studied, in the name of the Lord always refers to a, a character quality, that he will come and rescue Israel, and this occurs at the end of the tribulation period. Jesus has prophesied that your house is left to you desolate. He's prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in A.D. 70, and then they're still out under divine discipline until God brings them back. We saw this passage also last time that the condition for coming back is spelled out in Leviticus 26.40, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. Now, I believe that that iniquity of their fathers is going to go back to the national sin of Israel, which is the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. So they are going to acknowledge as a corporate entity their sin. This isn't unusual. Daniel did the same thing in Daniel chapter 9 at the beginning of the chapter. Daniel is reading in Jeremiah, and he reads in Jeremiah that God said that had, had told them that they would be out of the land for 70 years. And so when Daniel read that, he got out his abacus or his calcul- TI calculator or whatever and started adding it up and went, wow, we're at 70 years right now. And so Daniel prayed as an intercessor for the nation Israel and confessed their sin of idolatry and rebellion against God and prayed that God would restore them to the land. And it's at the end of that prayer 
that God sent uh, the angel Gabriel to tell him and give him the vision of the 70 weeks, the timetable for Israel. And it was not long after that that, uh, that the uh, Babylonians were defeated by the, uh, by the uh, Medes and the Persians, and Cyrus then authorized the Jews to return to the land at the end of the 70-year captivity. So he confessed their sin. God forgave their sin and restored them to the land. That is a partial restoration that occurred there that is a picture of the full restoration that will occur at the end of the tribulation period. So uh, Leviticus tells us that God will remember his his covenant. So just in conclusion, this is where we get some application. What God promises, God fulfills. It doesn't matter if you're Israel out of the land or if you're a believer facing adversity on a day-to-day basis. God fulfills his promises. He won't go back on his promises to Israel, and he won't go back on his promises to you. Remember, that's the context here. Paul has just said at the end of Romans 8 that we can't get out of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And yet some Jew might say, well, wait a minute, it seems like God's turning his back on Israel. No, God is going to be faithful to his promises to Israel. It's on his timetable, not yours. God. Second point, God promised Israel a worldwide scattering in the fifth cycle of discipline in Leviticus 26, 37, uh, 27 to 39, and in Deuteronomy 29. And he's and that is where they are today. The diaspora, where we get our English word dispersion, the diaspora is the name for the scattering of Israel among the nations. The diaspora came in several stages. The first stage occurred in 722 B.C. when God, when the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, were defeated by the Assyrians, and then they were taken as captives and they were scattered by the Assyrians throughout the Assyrian Empire. That's the beginning. Then, some 130 years later, and 140 years later, when the uh, Babylonians de- defeated Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, then those inhabitants of Judah were taken as captives back to Babylon. And there were some that, as they saw Nebuchadnezzar coming, they had fled to Egypt. Others had gone to other places uh, in order to, to avoid defeat. So there's the scattering of Israel. That lasted for 70 years, and then they came back. But not all of them came back. Only 45 or 46,000 came back under Zerubbabel in the first return. There were two or three other returns, but they weren't large, and they were mostly from from Persia, there were still large Jewish communities in Alexandria, in Egypt, and throughout Egypt, and in um, up uh, in Babylon, and as well as those who had scattered into the area of what we call Turkey today, the area of Cappadocia and Pontus, and that area, and further into Greece and into Rome. The promise of God was that if Israel turned to him, then he would restore them to the land. This is Leviticus 26, 40 to 42. But neither the return in, in 538 and its subsequent stages, nor the return that we're seeing today is the promised return of a regenerate Israel. But there had to be a return. This is an important thing to see. There had to be a return in 538 and because there had to be a national entity that the Messiah could come to the first time. If they hadn't, if God hadn't brought back a portion, maybe 30% of the Jews in the world at that time to establish a national entity, to be, be there to accept or reject the Messiah, then there was be, would have been no nation for him to come to. So there had to be a restoration. In the same way, there has to be a national regathering of a large percentage of Jews today because at the beginning of the tribulation, in fact, the event that begins the tribulation is when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. The, the tribulation doesn't begin with the rapture, which a lot of people think. It begins after the rapture, the, the first event that kicks off the, the stopwatch, uh, 
on Daniel's 70th week is is the um, signing of the peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. That's what starts it. So there's going to be a restoration, but not in belief. There's a restoration in unbelief at the before the tribulation begins, and then at the end, that's when we have the regathering and the full restoration of a regenerate uh, nation. Uh, <clears throat> God will bring them back corporately at the end of the tribulation to recognize Jesus. I mean, it will bring them back corporately th- before the tribulation ends and through the tribulation so that there is an entity there by the end of the tribulation to call upon the name of the Lord to come and deliver them. If there's no national entity Israel in the tribulation period, there won't be a temple for the uh, Antichrist to, to desecrate. Uh, there won't be a, a national entity there to fulfill the prophecies of, of, of uh, Revelation. And there won't be a, a national entity there to represent all of the Jews at the end of the tribulation to call upon the Lord to return. As we saw last time, this Calling on the name of the Lord takes place when the remnant has fled at the end to Basra. Then there are the verses I talked about last time where uh, the Messiah comes and rescues them and comes out of Basra. And the picture is, who is this coming whose robes are covered in blood because he has defeated the armies of the Antichrist. So he's coming as a victor. And it's at that time, a future time, when they'll call on the Messiah and he will remove the national guilt of their corporate sin. And that's the unforgivable sin that was, that took place in Matthew 12 when he was, when he was rejected. So the kind of salvation that we're talking about here is a national physical deliverance. That's part of the picture. The other part of the picture is it's talking about the same salvation that we have in Romans 1.16. Uh, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, this isn't the narrow gospel of Christ. How do I get to heaven? It incorporates all of the good news of Christianity that we're not only saved from the penalty of sin, but we're saved from the power of sin and saved from the presence of sin. It's what I facetiously call the real full gospel. Not the charismatic Pentecostal version, but the real biblical full gospel, including the spiritual life and future glorification, as we've seen in this chart. We're not only saved from the penalty of sin, we're saved from the uh, power of sin, and we will be saved from the presence of sin. So that takes us back again to Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be physically delivered. That's the context. You will be saved um, from what? We'll look at that in just a minute. Romans 1.17 says that those who've rejected God in, in the nonverbal revelation have what? They will, the wrath of God will be revealed to them in Romans 1.17. So this salvation here is deliverance in time from the wrath of God. The word for, uh, homo legat, uh, for confess here is the same word we usually use, but it not only means confess in the sense of confessing sins, it also means to declare and to praise. So it's a declaration that they will declare with their mouth the Lord Jesus. This is not lordship salvation that you have to declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord so that you can be saved. It is a declaration that Jesus is God. This is what happens at the end of the tribulation period. We see that in the parallel in Romans 10.14. In Romans 10.14, Paul asks the question, the rhetorical question, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? The point is you have to believe before God's going to call um, before you're going to call on the Lord to deliver you. Now we pointed out last time that uh, wait a minute before I go on, just to bring in a couple other. No, I'll go ahead and finish this. Pointed out last time. Now this is the hard part. There is a 
there's a literary structure to Romans 10, 9, and 10 using parallelism. And a form of parallelism is a chiasm. You have four statements, A, B, C, and D, or A and B, and then they're mirrored in B prime and A prime. So the first line, if you confess with your mouth, is mirrored by the last line, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So both the first line and the last line are talking about the same thing, which is confession unto deliverance. The middle two lines are talking about the same thing. The first line, B line, I believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is that you will be saved talking about getting justified, getting eternal life, or is it talking about getting deliverance? In context, it's deliverance. So when we look at the second B line, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, if that is synonymous to the first B line, then the second B line cannot be talking about forensic justification. It can't be talking about receiving the imputation of Christ. It's talking about believing in reference to the spiritual life and spiritual growth so that you will be saved and uh, believing unto righteousness are parallel and they're talking not about getting justified. They're talking about the, how the justified person believes in his walk with God. And my point is the whole context here has not talked anywhere in the Old Testament passage context or the New Testament context. The issue isn't how to get to heaven. The issue is God's deliverance of Israel. So since saved in the first line is talking about the about phase two deliverance, righteousness must also be talking about phase two righteousness or experiential righteousness. Now, we went on last time, and we looked at um, verse 11, who is a quote from the Septuagint of Isaiah 28, 16, the idea whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. God will fulfill his promise. He will deliver Israel. Why? Verse 13 and 14, as I've already said, uh, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then we have verse 14. How shall they call on him? This is explaining this whole act of calling on him. Now, there are uh, four things that are said, four rhetorical questions in this verse. And what the writer is doing is that he is presenting a series of steps in reverse order in how you get to the point of calling on the name of the Lord. Before you can call on the name of the Lord, you have to first believe. Before you can believe, you have to hear a message. That's the second one. Before you hear a message, there has to be someone proclaiming the message. There has to be a preacher. And then before... Uh, there's the preacher, someone has to send the preacher. So it's a reverse step to trace out what has to, all the steps that have to take place before you ultimately call on the name of the Lord. But notice, belief takes place before you call. They're not the same thing. They are separate steps and they're not related to, uh, salvation. So in the, in the correct order, First of all, a preacher is sent. Second, the proclamation occurs. Third, the people hear the proclamation. Fourth, some of the people believe the proclamation. Then fifth, those who believe then call on the name of the Lord for deliverance from wrath. Remember I said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16... Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation from what? In the next verse, we are two verses later we read in verse 18, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. What we're saved from in Romans 1.16 is the wrath of God. And as I pointed out when we went through our study in Romans 1, the wrath of God isn't future eternal judgment in the lake of fire because the description of God's wrath is how it's poured out upon people in history in time who disobey God. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And in Romans 1, we talk about the the uh, antinomian man in the first part of chapter 2, the moral person, and then in the latter part of chapter 2, the Jew who's trying to get righteousness by the law. God's righteousness is revealed to all three of those so that now we can call on the name of the Lord and be delivered from the wrath of God, which reaches its fullest expression in the tribulation period. And that deliverance from the wrath of God is equally available to both Jew and Gentile. That is Paul's point in verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. So that is a reference to the fact that this salvation isn't just for the Jews, it also is equally available to the Gentiles because where he is going in this argument from Romans 9 is to show, see, the Jews rejected the revelation that God gave them. God's offer is not just to the Jews, though. It's to the Gentiles. So God is expanding his offer uh, to the Gentiles, is continuing to offer that to the Gentiles, but eventually the Jews will also accept that offer. That gets into chapter 11. So this phrase, calling upon the name of the Lord, is a term, I mentioned this last time, to call upon the Lord for deliverance. It is used not of unbelievers calling upon the Lord for uh, deliverance from eternal condemnation, but it is always used of believers who are calling upon the Lord in prayer for deliverance from different kinds of temporal adversity. For example, in Psalm 14.4, Psalm 14.4 is a passage talking about uh, those who have rejected God and are the evildoers in contrast to those who have uh, trusted God and are calling upon him in their life. starts off with a well-known verse, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works, and there's none who does good. So it's a picture of the society that has completely rejected God. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there's any who understand or who seek God. See, Paul ends up quoting this whole section in, 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 in Romans 3. And then in verse 3 we read, They have all turned aside. Together they became corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. In, in summary... The writer of the uh, of the psalm, which is David, says, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? So here's an example of the, of the atheist, those who have rejected God. They don't call upon the name of the Lord. The unbeliever doesn't call on the name of the Lord. In contrast, if we look down to verse 7, we read, you, you shame the counsel of the poor. That's a condemnation for these workers of iniquity. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So the righteous, the poor are the righteous, and they do look to God as their refuge, and they, they call upon him. And in verse 7 we read, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. When does that happen? That happens at the end of the tribulation period. That's when God is restoring them to the land. Now, another passage using the call upon the Lord terminology is in Psalm 18.3, where the psalmist says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. Now the word there for saved is the Hebrew word Yeshuat. Yeshuat, where we get 
Yeshua. It's a form of the verb uh, Yasha. It's the without the T on the end. It's Yeshua, which is the Hebrew for Joshua or Jesus. So it means to be saved. But here, David is calling upon the Lord at a time when he is surrounded by his enemies and being persecuted by Saul. So when he says, I shall be saved from my enemies, is he talking about getting into heaven? Or is he talking about physical deliverance from present time adversity? See, it's not a, Yasha here is not a word that means necessarily getting into heaven. Psalm 31, 7. He prays, do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Again, a believer calling upon God to rescue them in time of trouble. I've called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. And again, David is in a time of adversity, and he wants God to rescue him and, and provide for him in this time of, uh, uh, of adversity. Now, there are many other passages in the Old Testament that uh, are in the Psalms that use the call upon the Lord terminology. Uh, Psalm 50, verse 15, Psalm 53, verse 4, Psalm 79, verse 6, Psalm 138, uh, 3, uh, Psalm 141, 1, Psalm 145, 18. I'll give them to you again. Uh, 50, 15, 53, 4. 79, 6, 138.3, 141.1, and 145.18. They all are believer calling upon God in prayer to deliver them. The calling upon the name of the Lord is not something the unbeliever does to get into heaven. It's what a believer does to be rescued by God. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 and 2 Timothy 2.22 use similar terminology in relation to believers. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, we read to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, believers or unbelievers? It's believers. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's talking about believers. So believers call upon the name of the Lord, not unbelievers. So when we look at Romans 10 and we talk about confessing with the mouth, it's parallel to uh, uh, calling on the name of the Lord, then this is what believers are doing in order to be rescued by God from some sort of present-time adversity or wrath. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Romans 10, 14 gives us the reverse process engineering of how you get to uh, the point of calling upon the name of the Lord. And it comes back to a quote from the Old Testament in verse 15. How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, now here comes your quote from Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Now I want you to notice Paul changes the Old Testament reference here. He says, how faithful the feet of those who preach the gospel. Have you ever thought, are your feet beautiful? If you're proclaiming the gospel, you've got beautiful feet. Now, that passage is applied to to who? Those. It's a third-person plural. The original in Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who is that referring to? Him. Him. Third person singular, one individual who brings good news. Guess who that one individual is who brings good news in the context of Isaiah 52, 7? It's the servant. It's the Messiah who is the one who brings good news. But now that he has brought the good news about who he is and salvation, then his followers take that good news and proclaim it. That's why Paul shifts it to a third person plural. And notice in that initial message as proclaimed in Isaiah, 
He's the one who proclaims salvation, that is deliverance, who said to Zion, your God reigns. Theologically, what's that a concept of? The kingdom. See, I'm trying to tie this to what we're studying in Matthew on Sunday morning, and that Matthew is the gospel of the king coming to present the message of the kingdom. See, that's what Isaiah portrays, is that the Messiah comes and he is, he is going to present the kingdom. Now, Romans 10, 16 and following tells us that, no, not all of the Jews respond. They have not all obeyed the gospel. Now, the gospel is a command, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Obeying the gospel doesn't mean doing good works. It doesn't mean going out and, and doing all of the law. It means to obey the command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So they, are, uh, they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? That's a quote from Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, not all of Israel is going to respond. Many will reject the message of the gospel. So then Paul concludes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's that order again. You believe because you hear something. You hear the message. You What's the message you hear? It is the word of God. So Romans 10.18 goes on to say, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, they have. They have heard. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. What sound is that? That's the proclamation of the word of God. This is a quote from, and then we get into Romans 10, 19, uh, the verse, Romans 10, 19, but I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 21, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. See, now what Paul is doing is he's saying, what's happened is the gospel was near, but you were looking in the wrong place and you rejected the word of God. And so it's not until you call upon the name of the Lord that, and, and accept the message that you're going to be delivered. Now, this is not shouldn't surprise you because in Deuteronomy 32, Moses warned about this. He said that there would be a, the Gentile, the Goy, uh, the Gentiles would come and respond and provoke the Jews to jealousy. Now, he's going to get into that more in chapter 11. Deuteronomy 32:21 said, "They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God." Okay, Moses says, I'll provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Then, but then he quotes from Isaiah in Romans 10:20. He says, uh, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. That's again a reference to, uh, to the Gentiles. And that is from Isaiah 65:1. And then 10.21 is from Isaiah 65.2. To Israel, he says, All day long I've stretched out my hands, that's God's continuous grace offer, to a disobedient and contrary people. See, we saw that the all day long. We see that offer of the kingdom in the Gospels. We see the, offer, the second offer of the kingdom all the way through Acts. God continually extending the offer, stretching out his hand, but they are, are disobedient and contrary people who uh, rejected uh, the gospel. So the natural conclusion then that comes is the question in chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul raises this rhetorically and says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Because when you end verse 21, it sounds like God's just thrown up his hands and cast away his people. And he says, Meganoitus, certainly not, not at all. And so we'll come back and look at chapter 11 and start there next time. Father, thank you for this time to study these things, to be reminded of your faithfulness to Israel, your faithfulness uh, to yourself, to your word, to your promises, and that you are always equally faithful to us 
always there to respond when we call upon you to give us that which we need to sustain us in the midst of trials and to rescue you from your wrath upon this earth, that no matter what happens, we have you to sustain us at all times. Father, we pray that you will challenge us with what we've learned this evening. In Christ's name, amen.